0: So well, it's XQ quality, better than HQ, but no one knows what the X stands for except for extremely good. Here we go. Totally awesome eighties podcast edition of Channel Massive episode two hundred three. My God. Really? It's kind of weird. I still haven't gotten used to the using the number two hundred in these podcasts. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> I'm Noah. Right. Also we have Jeff.
1: Hello there. And Mark. Hello.
0: <laughs> Greetings
1: and salutations. <laughs>
0: So we've had some technical difficulties, but we had a very special event that led us to choose a theme for this episode of of Channel Massive, all 1980s. And if you've been listening to the podcast for the last six months, you probably know that it's because of Ready Player One that we're going to do it. Uh, We have all officially finished the book. I finished the book over the weekend, and as you may remember, it started out... I was like, eh, I think the lead character's kind of a douche. But it grew and grew on me, and I ended up loving it. The book just, once it starts rolling, it, as Marcus said, it just becomes quite propulsive, and it's hard to stop reading it because it's this great adventure where there's it's a race, and there's a treasure hunt that's going afoot, and it's kind of got a mystery element in that you're presented with concepts, you know what the clues are up front, and trying to figure out on your own what that could mean where it could lead to next and then wrapping it all up in 1980s nostalgia that it all takes place in a simulated version of 1980s movies and video games. And even though, and it's set in a dystopic future of 2044 and yet it's focused on the 80s. It's just all this weirdness all wrapped together and it has a great big finale. I I think I read somebodys I read somebody's comment that they thought the ending was, dumb, but I actually liked it. I thought it worked out really well. Were you guys satisfied? Dumb?
2: Yeah, I don't, oh. yeah, I thought it was fine. I thought it was
0: spectacular. Yeah, the the commenter, he, he said that it was contrived or something like that.
1: Oh, yeah. come on. He's, he's contrived. His, com- his negative comment is
2: contrived. <laughs> yeah, he's probably just cynical I, with a happy ending, yeah. so to speak.
1: So this would be a good time to mention that I I sent an email to Ernest Klein and to the writers of the um, game uh, today, the the first challenge game, to say hey, we will be covering your um, <laughs> book in this podcast I'll this think. week. Oh, nice! <laughs> <laughs> That's so, great. No. <laughs> that <was
0: awesome.
1: laughs> so, what what did the writing? I'm cu- really curious though to dig into that. The writing style initially, something just rubbed you the wrong way, or did it just? kind of not all fit together was it kind of like why is he writing it like this until you hit a certain point and said oh now I now, now, now I understand the style or
0: what you know what the... I think it was is, uh, I think that it was I was just I was off put more by the personality of the character uh, because mm. you just just thrown right into exactly who he is and he's kind of cynical and he's kind of a know-it-all and he's OCD and there's a, a bit of a swagger about him, and I wasn't getting—I wasn't getting into it. I'm like, this guy's just obnoxious. I—I yeah. I, I don't uh-huh. care if he likes all the same stuff that I do. I don't want to talk to him.
2: <laughs> yeah, you didn't feel like you could root for him right away. He had to win you over.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the supporting cast of characters are really endearing, and I think that's really what helps balance it out is that they all have great personalities that offset what's going on and the main character gets put through some difficult experiences that are awful or they kind of reset his self-confidence and kind of bring him back down to earth. And I think seeing that character arc develop, pushing through to to get to that made it even more fulfilling and made me end up liking him in spite of my initial impression. My initial impression was like, gosh, this guy's obnoxious. Uh, <laughs> But it's just like all of the 80s stuff in there was just so great too. And you need to have – in order to support the structure and the idea of – it's in the future, but in the past. At the same time, you need characters who are psychotically obsessed with all the details to lend credibility to it. So it's not like, oh, this, this dude didn't just go to Wikipedia and look up 80s trivia or go to some kind of 80s trivia website the author really knew lots of stuff down to really levels and was able to just tie it all together into something that was really fun and that there's romance in it that I actually thought was well done and it didn't feel like it was thrown in because, Oh, we need a romance and the, the, the development of the romantic relationship went really well. The relationship between the main character and his best friend was really cool. And additional surprises that were in there and seeing how, the clues were resolved and how were the challenges resolved and what were the challenges. And then what happens when everything seems to possibly, everything that could possibly go wrong, what happens there? How do you get out of that? It just really, really, I loved it. So much fun. And I'm so excited about the movie. And I think I'd want to read the book again, just because it was such a fun adventure.
2: Totally. And plus, I've been going back to all the references, both. Overt and subtle, it's a good way to catch some of the ones you missed if you go back and read it. So, I definitely plan on doing the same.
0: Yeah, so we got into this whole book experience. Jeff heartily recommended it, and then Mark sort of recommended it. And then finally, I I got on the boat just in time for a book signing that happened this week. My first book signing. I've I've never been to a book signing before. Have you guys been to one before? Me neither.
2: Yeah, I've, I've been to a couple. I'm a, I'm that type
0: of nerd. <laughs> <laughs> but I told yeah, you. I'd, um, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was going to say, if, if Stephen R. Donaldson ever has one, I'll, I'd go to that. But I think it takes a lot to get me to get up and go to a book signing. And, and definitely this was I kind of the bar was set so high by the way he just talked about you know, it was unexpected. Like all the talk about um, fanboys and the, his his kind of cruel tutelage of Pai as far as like how the industry works and how nobody got what you know. They're like, well, let's take out the the death, the person dying part. Just like when he was pitching Ready Player One, they're like, well, let's take out the '80s part. It was so interesting to hear that, and it just confirms yeah. you know your 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 darkest fears about you know why movies that come out based on you know existing intellectual property tend to suck in some ways sometimes when there's so much potential and you're just like, oh my God, I can't believe there was any way they could have screwed that up and they did and his insights really you know i thought fleshed out a lot of stuff that I'd kind of suspected but and it was it was done so well too that it was I was just riveted for his entire- the entire time he was <laughs> Me speaking too.
2: Yeah, and that's what was really fantastic. It wasn't just the the other book signings I've been to is literally just that you get in the line, you wait, you know, an hour and a half, and then you get up to the guy, he signs your book, you say, hey, goodbye, thanks, here's a picture. For this one, the first, I don't know, well over an hour. Ernie Klein, the author we're talking about here, he he spoke to the crowd candidly. He gave all sorts of cool little anecdotes about where he's been and what sorts of things he did to get inspired creatively and what things helped him gain confidence in becoming a writer. And it was just really, really fascinating.
0: You could, I I really gained a respect for him that he's not only a good writer and just a really, he has a really great imagination and and taking something that people could have a lot of prejudices about pop culture stuff, whether it's star Wars and fanboys or 1980s trivia and bands and video games that he's able to take it and make it something unique and exciting in a book is impressive, but also just his ability, his natural ability as a storyteller really shown through in his speech that he gave, because he starts out and he's talking about Hollywood and he's talking about fanboys. And it's so weird. It's like, why are we hearing about this? Because it's like, it's, <laughs> it's not, it's, it's obviously something he did and it's really cool. But it's like, how does this tie in? But he actually, it all flowed together perfectly. There's a reason why I told, uh His experiences with fanboys and how it all developed, and how that led into him working on Ready Player One and his hesitances there, his hesitancy there, and then how that was his, his Hollywood experiences kind of repeated again. And what I thought was cool is that he was critical and he was angry about some stuff about Hollywood, and he was able to express that, but he was also able to still be diplomatic about it and rationalize and say, "Well." this may, this may frustrated me, but I understand why it happened. Yeah. I understand I, it's because people, this is, these are jobs. These are people working and everybody has to be involved and there's specialists in different areas. And when all these specialists come together, inevitably it's not perfect. And it explained why he loves books so much. It's like it all tied into this theme of like, yeah, I really wanted to make movies. I wanted to just write screenplays. I, I have this connection with Harry Knowles that makes almost anything I want to happen, make possible in Hollywood. But he's found writing books so much more fulfilling and he yeah, tied it all together. That was so cool.
1: Yeah. It, like I say, the bar I think has been set so high by that. And then, so then he does that. Then you do the book signing, which he, you know, to ask you if you're a star Wars fan or a uh, star Trek fan. And a few people were really bold and said, you know, Battlestar Galactica or uh, <laughs> um, baseballs, uh, you know, Spaceballs or something which was interesting But you know he got you know kind of Got to know it, each person that, that Was signing the book it wasn't just you know Move on through the line um, It was really cool and then After that was all done um, Everybody got to go outside And see his DeLorean that's you know For this contest that he's got going um, And you know sit in it And take pictures with it and, and It was just such a cool thing It's I can't imagine another book Signing being at that like <laughs> where you feel like you have a connection with the person um where you're actually honestly just entertained for a very long period of I mean I really didn't think I was going to be there that long but I couldn't leave there was no way it was too exciting you so know had good. something else yeah. to be doing yeah. um and and uh you know it's just, it was just it was just really incredible it's something I'll never forget it was really good um and uh I really look forward to seeing you know what what he does from here, where he goes, you know he's talked about a coming of age book and um you know other projects, and uh yeah, just it was awesome I don't know do we need to do a good a good kind of brief synopsis of what Ready Player One is all about um and the contest before we go further, do you think, or
0: yeah, think why not or- i think that should help set some more context yeah yeah, listeners yeah. If you
2: couldn't tell we were so excited about this story and this author that we haven't really given much context, but believe us, this is a book worth reading. And I'm not sure which one of us wants to give a little elevator pitch about what it is exactly.
0: You should do it, Jeff.
2: Yeah, I think so. (laughs) So imagine a not too distant future. It's dystopian. Society's kind of collapsed in a real bad way. And um, in times like that, the best way to get through it, arguably is through escapism and what's available to these people is a virtual world called the Oasis. So, um, simply speaking, imagine second life, but realistically think of something much, much more and much more entertaining and, and limitless. Um, the Oasis is designed by, um, a guy named James Halliday. So you can think of him as a, um, 21st century Willy Wonka, if you will, or a Steve Jobs type of guy. He designed it all himself. He's like a super brilliant programmer. And he grew up in the 80s, and he was a super geek guy like all of us are and you people listening out there, I'm sure. So he was fascinated with all assets of 80s pop culture, movies, bands, video games, um, you name it. So he sprinkles all sorts of references to that era. In the Oasis, Um, uh, you guys take it from here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, the book kicks off with that game creator dying. And there's a video that he releases posthumously that basically is full of all these 80s references unexpectedly because the Oasis isn't basically an 80s simulation. It's a huge MMO universe with all these unique planets that are based around all different types of themes and people even do real world transactions there. The main character in the book goes to school in a, a in the Oasis at Inverse a planet right. that's covered by schools. But the creator of this world, this total zillionaire has died. And so he releases a video saying that he has a contest where that involves three keys and three gates. And the first person who can find all of these keys and then go through the subsequent gates and then beat the challenges within the gates will get a huge chunk of money and full creative control over Oasis. And since Oasis is used around the world and everybody is completely obsessed and lives in it for a a number of reasons. And since there's only one clue to the very first key In that video, the whole world gets obsessed with with trying to figure it out, and the main character, Wade, after five years, he's the first person to figure out the first key, and then everything, the dominoes, just begin to fall after that, with other kids trying to figure it out, other groups of people like guilds within Oasis trying to figure it out, and also a giant corporation... That wants to win it, win control of Oasis for itself so that it can monetize it even better because in this book, Oasis is free to people.
1: Right. Yeah, I forgot about that. And that's the big, so that's the big, um, when you come up with the, you know, the antagonist side of the storyline, it's um, this company called Innovative Online Industries, which has been, you know, trying to provide, you know, content in the Oasis um, but they their big their big goal is to take it over and then monetize it and put on all, all kinds of you know advertising and you know basically whore it out and think, they're led think, by uh, uh...
2: think uh, Activision and Bobby Kotick <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly
2: yeah, yeah.
1: exactly um, they're led by uh, they're so they're they're represented the the good the good people or the honest people trying to win the contest for you know are called the gunters and these guys are called the sixers and they're led up by um Nolan Sorrento who uh his uh his that all of the guys kind of sign into the game with a a number starting so they're usually like IOI for innovative online industries and then they'll have like a a, a number starting with 6 and so they're you know like six five five three two one is Nolan Sorrento's number, and they're called the Sixers. And most of the Gunter's have a slogan, which is No Sixers.
0: And something else that's cool about this book is that it's really fascinating to hear, especially as a video gamer, whether you are a video gamer just in the '80s or if you are you are a video gamer even today and you have experience with MMOs, is to hear how this game is designed how it functions there are a couple far-fetched like oh come on elements but they're necessary for it all to tie together and you just deal with that and like whatever sure that's that's all right yeah. but the game doesn't take place exclusively in the game the, the book doesn't take place exclusively in the game world there are definitely lots of different sequences that occur in the dystopic world too which are also Really interesting because there's such a stark contrast and there's such a bleak view of the future to see how society has tried to cope with its collapse, as Mark said earlier, and yeah. also see how the the haves and the have-nots manage to get by.
2: Yeah, and so we've talked about this contest here: three keys, three gates, riddles to solve, video game challenges, all sorts of cool adventure to journey all the way through and win Halliday's fortune in this virtual world okay so now grab your brain get ready because your mind's about to be blown that same challenge exists in the real ready player one book there's hidden easter eggs and ernie klein has created this whole challenge three gates three keys three challenges with video game stuff and the prize is one of these awesome um deloreans it's amazing
0: yeah, he actually went on to eBay. He he bought a DeLorean because that was the first thing. He's like, oh, my gosh, I'm successful. My book has had the movie rights purchased before it's even been published. That's when I first heard about this book. I'm like, wow, it must be really good. And then I kind of just like zoned out. And so he's like, I've got all this money. I'm going to get DeLorean. I'm going to customize going and put a flex capacitor in it. I'm going to get a proton pack. I'm going to get a hoverboard. I'm going to get all this 80 <laughs> stuff. And then he's like, I should give this away as part of a contest to hide an Easter egg inside my own book. And then he's like, Well, that's insane. And then he actually bought a second DeLorean on eBay just for the purpose of this contest, which will be running throughout the summer. There's a, the first challenge is available now. You have to use the book to find out. You can use the ebook. Mark was able to figure it out on his own, but. There's definitely a way within the printed version of the book, which is recommended by the author, that you can figure out the first clue and get to the first video game challenge. And then that will lead to the second video game challenge, which launches on the 1st of July, and the third video game challenge, which launches on the 1st of August. And the first person to complete all three of those wins the DeLorean. Woohoo!
2: And of which, uh, Mark here has been a valiant... Warrior, he's already completed the first challenge. Noah and I have not.
0: Nope.
1: <laughs> <laughs> are are you guys planning on uh on oh. digging in or oh yeah definitely, definitely.
2: <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm I'm too stubborn though. I don't want to do any research on what you need to do to get the first URL for the first challenge. I, I want to figure it out on my own, even if it takes all summer. <laughs> I think but that's thing cool thing, though. I mean like,
0: the third challenge is gonna launch on the work day in the middle of the week. Oh, <laughs> no, yeah. If July you're 1st. a 40 hour day person, because the July 1st one at least is on a Sunday, but the August 1st one, the final one that's needed to win the whole caboodle, uh, is on August 1st, which is a Wednesday in the middle of the work week. So yeah. there's going to be some lucky schmuck. I bet there's going to be people taking time off.
2: Just yeah, wait, I was just to thinking think about that. Person <laughs> to do well, it. I mean, I might. even even still, it's just the whole challenge in its entirety. Like, I mean, I don't think either of us or any of us are going to win the DeLorean, but just going through the challenges and just the uniqueness of the idea is so fun to participate in. Yeah. And truly a cool
0: prize that just ties in with the whole theme of the book. It's a total icon of the 80s. It's about time travel and the book in its way, as the author said last night, is like a time travel machine of its own and that it's in the future and it's in the past. Yeah. So that kind of sums up a lot of stuff. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're all just so excited. We're talking
0: enthusiastically about this book. Yeah. We yeah, have a, I think a bit I... of a showage in the to put together. We've kind <laughs> of in, in, uh, unexpectedly hit on some of the items already. But before we continue on that, we're going to take a quick break, come back and tell you what we've been playing. So we'll have a, a bit of a regular Channel Massive episode moment and then we're going to when, – when we're done with that, we'll get back with some roundtable discussion on just some general thoughts about the book and the movie, maybe a few more, maybe not too much more. Uh, and then also just about the 80s in general because there isn't a better excuse to do it than focusing on this book. So we're going to be talking about our favorite 80s pop culture stuff from movies to video games and other stories. So – that's something to look forward to. If you have any comments, or if you want to share your own favorite 80s memories, video games, books, movies, pop culture, whatever, or your impressions of Ready Player One, or if you're going to try to track down Ernie Klein his next book signing, because the tour just started, so he may be coming somewhere near you soon, which is recommended, send all that into mail, mail at channelmaster.com. We'll be back in just a moment. And ten and young and lovely, the gal from
1: Ipa, goes walking
2: and fancy. This episode of Channel Massive is sponsored by UGT Servers. When you order Ventrilo hosting from UGT, you get all of the powerful administration features hardcore gamers want and the ease of use that newbie gamers need. With 24-hour tech support, 13 locations worldwide, and a 15-day money-back guarantee, You'd be crazy not to check them out. Head to ugt-servers.com for all of your Ventrilo hosting needs.
1: So, let's talk about um what kind of gaming we've done for the last week. Uh Jeff, what have you been what have you been up to?
2: Well, it's it's uh the a game I've been playing for some time, uh, Skyrim. I finally got through the College of Winterhold um, side quest thing, and that, that was really spectacular. It was like a whole game in and of itself, and it was very rewarding. At the end of it, you get the uh, Archmage robes, which are incredibly useful, and I, I just can't get enough of that game. It's so immersive for me, and I'm just totally absorbed by it. Um, but Do you know how many that, hours you've Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. How many hours
1: do you think you've got in that I think game? I'm, at like, I'm just
2: curious. I think I'm at like 40-something. So not oh, super wow. high up, but it's up there for sure. And, uh, oh, yeah. I also played through the first episode of the downloadable game uh, Walking Dead.
0: Oh, hmm. cool. Yeah, and What was, platform did you play it on? Uh, PS3. Did you like it?
2: Yeah, I thought it was surprisingly well done. I Maybe it's because my expectations weren't Terribly high, but I was I was rather impressed, and it was good too. It was a nice, nice sized chunk. Like you can kind of play through it in one sitting and really, really gain a lot from it. I'll definitely get the second one when that comes out soon. And the, aesthetically, it's cool too. It's it's got unique characters and they're kind of semi exaggerated in their features, and it almost has a feel of uh, a graphic novel versus the, you know, photorealism of the show or something like that. Oh, that's cool. Because, yeah, it yeah. did come from a graphic novel or, well, a comic book. and
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's really cool. See,
2: so, yeah, I'd recommend it if you guys haven't checked it out.
0: I will. I definitely want to. I just don't know what platform to get it on. I'm not sure if it would be better on PC versus console. Yeah. But I will, because I definitely have heard... I was so happy to hear good things about it. After the way Jurassic Park, the Telltale Jurassic Park game performed, which was really poorly, which is yeah. a bummer, because I was really looking forward to it, and I enjoyed getting a chance to play the D3 a couple of years ago. Um, I was worried this was going to be like that again.
2: And they, they did the Back to the Future ones as well, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And uh, the new Monkey Island series oh, yeah. as well. They've done a lot, and a lot of them have been really good. People complain that their graphics engine is dated and it's really, and then particularly in Walking Dead, apparently it's really looking rough, but I think they continue to do a good job. Me too. So I'm excited to check it out.
1: Is that pretty much it for you, Jeff?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's it for me.
1: All right. What about you, Noah? What have uh what have you been up to?
0: Well, I was really excited to finish Mass Effect 2 and. That's I'm still kind of in the afterglow <laughs> of that experience. It was really neat. But since then, I picked up Vanquish for Xbox 360, hmm. which is made by Platinum, the people who made Mad World on Wii, and also Bayonetta? Yeah. I'm, I Sometimes I get Platinum mixed up with Grasshopper, who made Killer7 and the new Lollipop Chainsaw and Shadows of the Damned. Platinum made... Bayonetta, Vanquish, a strategy game that I – or an RPG game, Infinite Space. They they both make quirky games <laughs> at the end of the day. Oh, that's cool. And Vanquish is – it got really good reviews, but it came out around the holidays and uh, I think in 2010, and it just kind of got steamrolled because of it. But it's it's uh, it's kind of got a vibe of Rama and Halo and Gears of War all mixed together. Hmm. It's set in a near future, and this crazy Russian state gets a hold of they're in a they get a hold of some kind of satellite <laughs> is it crap no it's literally russia it's some kind of evil communist oh. russia that's still around, and they take this satellite weapon that basically fires a giant microwave beam and they shoot it into san francisco and It's very obvious, which is weird because you would think a microwave beam would not be visual. You couldn't see it. But it's this giant (sighs) crackling red beam that comes down from the sky, but nothing happens. And people are like, oh, wow, look at that, look at that. And then the ocean starts boiling in San Francisco Bay. The water starts boiling. And then the people start boiling and exploding. And it's like, whoa, this is gross. That's, <laughs> wow. that's
2: crazy. I wonder if there's some sort of uh, subtext there from the developers because that's a Japanese-developed game, right? Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of the <laughs> the devs on the west side are in San Francisco. I wonder if there's some subtext there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um uh, but Absolutely. then it, it leads into you, – you're playing a game with, as a dude in a robot suit who has the most ridiculously gravelly voice, and he smokes cigarettes, and he just thinks he's so badass, and he has stubble, of course. But his, his suit is really cool in that he can juggle both uh, electromagnetic grenades and explosive grenades and sniper guns and handguns and uh, machine guns and shotguns, and he can juggle all that. And Whoa. He can also go into a bullet time mode and he can acrobatically dodge stuff. And it's like a third person behind the shoulder type view. Uh, So he and all these, and he's a Marine. And so they all take off into space to do a full on assault against the Russian armada up there. And there's this (sighs) cool cinematic sequence where they just barely get in through the doors as they're closing and crash their ship in there. And it's some kind of Rama like, uh, Habit where, habitat where it's like it's a cylinder tube, and everything's built on the inside. And there's a city and a forest and ocean. Or, oh, oh like that's like, a city is It's in
1: rendez- Rendezvous with Rama it's, by Arthur C. Clarke.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm trying oh, to think. Oh, cool. sorry, <laughs> like, I really.
1: <laughs> that it, no no that's way cool. That's like yeah. There, yeah, there was but, an old school video game called that too. In addition to
0: the. Oh yeah, it the adventure game—is that what you're thinking of? Or yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It was like a yeah, like an adventure game. Like a, it was like a Zork game. Thing.
0: Like the first puzzle. Yes, was it was just, very hard. do hexadecimal math. And it's like
1: oh, well, to get, just to get in, right? Just to get yeah. in the damn thing was like about impossible. But, wow, <laughs> very that is cool. We're we're great cool, fans of it. Talk about a blast from the past, there, Noah. That's
0: awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so yeah, and it's just like this. It's apparently a bit of a short game, but it's just this balls of the crazy-ass action. Just everything's exploding. There's all these giant robots that you have to take down. There's a whole army of small robots, and that's where the electromagnetic comes in. And then you've got all your platoon mates. And if you notice that they're down, you can run over and give them a healing shot and get them back on their feet. And then one other aspect of it, in addition to all those the things, is that, and it's illustrated on the cover of the game, is you can fall on your ass, it's <laughs> like just five. fall, huh? and, like turbo boost your ass all over the place <laughs> sliding around on your hip or uh, basically, and shoot things which is really cool. To, you can't do it infinitely because then your suit overheats but it's a really great way to get into position and to get into cover because that's the Gears of War aspect. There's a lot of cover based shooting in it and uh, oh, I definitely sure. recommend it. It's available for pretty cheap on Amazon and if you're into Gears of War and you like kind of zany over the top, really action packed shooter games, it's really cool.
2: it sounds like Max Metal Gears of War pain.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because Max does that too. He does his little, gets into the comfortable pose sideways like he's going to lounge and then shoot, shoot, shoot. Uh, And then I also started Mass Effect 3 because I I just freaking can't help it. I was going to pause and try to play Xenoblade on Wii, but the the story must go on. And so I got into Mass Effect 3. And it's really interesting having played all three games back-to-back like this to see how different they are. I mean, aside from obvious asinine interface differences where the freaking main menu is changed every single time where they rearrange everything. Um, But just the tone of each of the games is different. The first game is very much a traditional RPG. There's this big evil threat. They're going to destroy the universe and you've got your crew and maybe you can add one or two people to it and you build up everybody and you go and take on the evil threat, but it's really fulfilling. And it's got the added aspect of Bioware's morality. And do you want to be a jerk or do you want to be nice you want to have romances or not. It just makes it really feel full. Whereas the second game, it's like, you it's a really dramatic, horrific beginning. And there's something really evil going on. That's the main antagonist in that game. And you have nothing. You start with nothing and you start from scratch uh, in an understandable way. And you're, allied with people that you wouldn't expect to be allied with because you run into them in the first game. And then it's like, wow, I'm working with these people now and Uh all of the weirdness of that. And then going through the process of building your whole crew and recruiting them, finding them winning over their loyalty and totally refined shooter cover based mechanics that make it, that are even more fun than the first game. And then the third game, it's, it's different yet again, in that it's distinctly a war story role playing game. And I've never, there's definitely ones out there both Japanese and Western but I've never played a game that's really a war story where it's really about the big picture there's lots of loss everywhere it's kind of depressing but you have to see it through and there's still the character stuff and the relationship stuff but it's toned down in the interest of like there's this huge horrific threat that's going on that you have to deal with and uh getting through that it's just it's going to be really interesting to see how it all ties out and if I'm actually disappointed with the ending or pack, yes. Like yes,
1: if you start making cupcakes to send in protest, that, that would be really
0: interesting. By the time I get to it, the epilogue should be out, so I'm not worried about it.
1: Oh, that's true. Yeah, you'll have your, you'll have your ending the way you'll have your happy ending. <laughs> that's all that matters.
0: So how about you, Mark?
1: Um, so, yeah, my gaming has only been the, uh, I would say, the, the metagame of the, the contest for the, the Ready Ooh. Player One contest and then playing the stacks and um so the stacks is the the game that is when you get to the first gate, that's the game you play, which is simulating the um kind of the Wade's typical life experiences in the stacks, so you have to avoid the the meth addicts and the sex offenders. <laughs> and your uh, your computer's been broken up into six pieces, and you have to grab that as well. You can grab some software, and you can grab some burgers to give you more life, and software goes towards your points, so, you know, little disks. Um, so I really geeked out on the game, and I mapped it all out with a spreadsheet with all the different levels so I'd know what was going on. And, and um,
2: Platform-wise, this is Atari 2600. Yeah, it's, right. a, it's
1: an Atari 2600, and when you get to the first gate... Um, of the contest you can play it just in a web browser as long as you have java because it's using a kind of a standard um an embedded uh you know a browser embedded um java um atari 2600 emulator that auto loads the rom up and everything or you can download the rom and and play it in the emulator you know in a standalone mode too Um, I talked to one person, believe it or not, I didn't cheat, but I talked to somebody who did, who did the, um, who used the emulator and it lets you save games as you go. Ah, what was that cartridge that they used to have for a lot of, yeah, it's like a game genie version of it. Oh, cool. So, um, a friend of mine, uh, Bob got a perfect score because he, um, saved quite often and <laughs> nice. used my map too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he was, he was set, but he would have mapped it on his own anyway. But um, yeah, it's kind of, I had a really low score um, Went with mine. I just wanted to just get the picture sent off and get in the, the listing, you know? So, yeah. so the, I, I didn't really care, but m- my fun was mostly just mapping it all out and, uh, you know, kind of learning how to, how to play. It's funny because There's a lot of, uh, I'm on a lot of the forums now for the hunt for this, you know, and a lot of people are saying the game is just too fast and it's too hard. And I'm like, well, if you're the target audience of the contest, which would be, you know, most likely um, somebody who grew up in the 80s when games were actually really hard, like the Atari 2600 stuff, it's not that hard at all. I mean, it really isn't. I don't think you learn, you learn the patterns. (laughs) <laughs> wussies yeah they're totally being wussy about it i mean it's there's parts that are challenging the first time or the second time but after you start to learn how to get past the sparks and the sex offenders and stuff it's um it's not really something that should be you know you should never it's not something you should ever
2: not be able to overcome you know yeah i, I
1: think yeah, go ahead I haven't,
2: sorry. I haven't played it but i imagine it boils down in the old school sense it's kind of pattern recognition and yeah. Knowing what to expect, where and when, and learning from prior mistakes and that type of thing.
1: Yeah, like playing Pitfall or something. It's just you You just kind of learn how to hit the vine just right, and, you know, to hear the Tarzan yell, sort of, yeah. so to speak. So, yeah, <laughs> I really enjoyed it just because it was so retro. It was so – the whole thing, the contest, everything was so unexpected. Um, I, really, I really enjoyed – you know, I, I actually – got the url for the first gate not the way i was supposed to and then actually discovering the the way i was supposed to do it the the actual easter egg made it even cooler i was like oh i can't believe i missed that and that is just so cool you know so um but yeah that was all i did i didn't play any other games i haven't touched league of legends or diablo 3 or anything i just wow (laughs) Yeah. Who would have
0: thought that your Diablo 3 time would have been waylaid by an Atari 2600 game? No one could Did have you. predicted. If
1: you'd asked me a month ago, and not mentioned that it was related to Ready Player One or Contest, and just said, you will stop playing Diablo 3 because of a, an Atari 2600 game that will come out. And not only will you play that game, but you will map everything in the game out, <laughs> obsessive compulsively, and you will be very proud of what you've done. You know, it was like, I would not have known. So, That's so cool. when we are at the book signing, um, I, I was telling, um, when we, we brought our stuff up to, to get it signed, you know, Ernest was really friendly and he's, and I said, you know, I just love the contest and I love the game. And, uh, I geeked out on it so bad that I made a spreadsheet and he said, Oh, send in to the same uh, email address that for the contest, send in your spreadsheet because um Mike and Kevin who are the guys that put the game together just love to see what the players are doing to, you know, map out. They love the the maps that people are coming up with. So That's cool. I sent, I sent that in um this morning. So That's hope cool. they, I hope they get a kick out of it. It's it's pretty funny. So
0: And just as an illustration that we're not the only people who just love this game or this book, games, books, it's all mixing together.
2: Uh,
0: (laughs) These games were made for free voluntarily by game developers who loved the book Ready Player One. They reached out to the author and said, Hey, wow. Not only creators of the games that are referenced in the book, but other developers are like, Hey, we loved your book. Can we make a, game about it and he's like yeah it's like let's work together he's like of course and so all of this stuff it's all homegrown around the enthusiasm for this novel which
1: makes it so cool definitely so awesome but yeah that's all I've done in gaming um and I you know what I feel like it was a very full week so I'm very happy about (laughs) it (laughs) I know I was going nuts the day I started to discover the Gates and stuff was sending you guys emails, so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where
0: you're so excited, you're sending us the images signifying your victory, and that I was—I was kept so thinking good. to myself, I'm like, he has to have cheated at some point in this. He has I cheated. I,
1: I did not cheat
0: <laughs> because you just—it just happened so quickly. You found yeah. out of the contest and you did. I'm like, how did he do it? <laughs> and then I'm like, well, this is Mark. But no, Mark is just so freaking brilliant. He didn't even need the print edition to figure it out. So
1: wow, I, wouldn't that. To you. I just had a really weird, I just thought the contest was different than what it was. <laughs> it, you know, I was totally looking in the wrong place and still found what I wanted. In fact, I know where all three gates are now. So I'm Ooh,
0: really... <laughs> Dude, that is awesome. I have one, that.
2: one additional cool element regarding the challenge that exists within the book directly is, um, this whole book tour is to promote the paperback release. And that's when it became publicly known that the Easter egg truly existed in the print edition. But that's been there since day one when the hardback copy came out probably, I think a year ago and it just laid dormant. Nobody found it in months. Right. And nobody, that
1: was really telling when Ernest was talking about how, there was a few comments about the book where they're like oh yeah like the like a contest would be going for 5 years and nobody would would get to the you know through the first phase and then he's like hmm 10 months hmm yeah <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: but that that intimidates me since i don't want to have any sort of hints or clues or whatever like i'm am i going to be able to find this damn thing i hope so oh you will cool
0: yeah have faith yes <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, I'd be really interested to find out if any of the folks listening out there have already known about this. They're just as big of fans, if not bigger than us, and have already proceeded, and they're on their scoreboard. Let us know about yeah. your adventures or if you have been able, like Mark, to deduce all the way out towards the end of the contest how it's going to resolve. That's pretty Well, unless
1: the, cool. third, the third gate could be a bogus one. I, I kind of hope it is to miss it. A red meet. herring? Yeah, like a placeholder or something. That would be yeah, because cool. I I knew the first one's real because I had to get there. And when you finish the first one, the second one is told to you, but I already I already guessed it. But um, wow. But I was at least I knew for sure it was true. But the third one could be a red herring. So
0: that's true. Who knows? It could change. It could change over the next month and a half. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Totally. And so listeners, yeah, if we haven't convinced you already to read this book,
0: read this book. <laughs>
2: Oh yeah, so actually, the
0: commission—we yeah. promise.
1: Yeah. Not? and there's still time to win the DeLorean because yeah. the gates open in phases. So, like we kind of mentioned, it was June 1st, July 1st, and then the third gate is August 1st. So, mm. there's yeah. still plenty of time, not only to do the the challenges, but to read the book because it yeah. goes so quickly. I don't know if you had graphed your progress on the book, Noah. Would it have been like you know first? Like 10 chapters took three weeks, and then the last the last part of the book took about a day or two. Yeah,
0: yeah. it did, because I, I, I did I, I read the last 100 pages, in which a lot of stuff happens um, within a day. And I was partially motivated, because I knew that the book signing was coming up, and I wanted to be prepared for it, because I was really digging the book at that point. Yeah. But I almost think that I still would have finished it, because it's just – it's like I had to aside time for it that I normally would have played video games. So it's like, this is worth it to read this book instead because it's so much fun. But yeah, definitely. It's like a a, a line graph that goes zoop, up at the yeah. end. <laughs> Very exponential.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's great.
0: So yeah, well, listeners let us know if you've uh, gotten into the video game challenge of Ready Player One. We, uh, and send that into mail. M-A-I-L. At com. We would normally include some feedback in this episode. we have, For instance, a great hearty email from Agamemnon, the Reckoning, to get into. But since this is so 80s, we don't want that to get lost. And we're going to save that for next week. Uh, But we will have our regular listener feedback section in next week's episode. So feel free to write in any other thoughts that you have on stuff that's going on in your game world, reactions to E3, etc., or this book, which we will get back into talking to in a second.
2: talking about Ready Player One, a novel, and naturally any successful novel will get a screen adaptation, and just that has happened for Ready Player One. Um, Basically, after the initial interest in the book rights, immediately thereafter, Hollywood typically in those scenarios wants to immediately grab the rights for a movie, and that's the state we're in. It's not guaranteed to be made, but the rights have been bought, and if so, Ernie Klein, the author of the novel, has been pegged as the initial screenwriter. Um, so if they were to adapt it to the the big screen, how do you guys think it could be? Do you think there would be a lot of pros to it, a lot of cons? Would it translate well? Would it flop and just not capture the true essence of the story as it can only be conveyed in the novel? Um, what do you think? Can we judge it on other books that have been adapted, like Harry Potter or the Hunger Games? Well, so I'll just
1: say when I read the book um i wasn't I wasn't too far into the book when I thought this would make a great movie. I mean the book really reads in a way that to me um, just seemed really conducive to uh becoming a movie i didn't I don't feel like he wrote it with that intent, but maybe a little bit after his interview, you know, it seems like he was interested in screenplays at the time. Um, but it just, def- it just definitely jumped out to me as like, Oh, this could totally be uh, a really cool movie. Um, and, you know, some of the movies that were out at the time were kind of like, um, you know, about teens, you know, like uh, what was that one? Kick-Ass um, or, mm-hmm. Help me out here. There was yes, just a goes. bunch, a bunch like that, you know, kind of like coming of age, but with like, but so much going on that it wasn't really about the coming of age. I was just occurring, sort of. But I just thought, you know, this, this could, this, I could really see it happening. Um, and so I never doubted it for a minute that it would be a movie. And I'd read some stuff on, I don't know, different, um, you know, like Reddit and stuff. Where people were basically saying, "Yeah, of course it could be a great movie." Um, After after hearing uh, Ernest speak about it and about his previous experience with fanboys, I'm convinced that he's uh, learned enough about the industry and has, you know, kind of, um, you know taken taken the uh taken a beating in some ways with fanboys, but learned enough to where I think if anyone could be successful in kind of seeing their artistic vision come through. I I know he said that, you know, like JK Rowling, because of the popularity and everything, kind of has her full discretion with the Harry Potter movies. But I think he's become, you know, savvy enough that the movie could actually not suck, that he could actually, you know, keep the eighties in it, which was really one of fun one of his funnier comments was that You know when he had the whole fanboys movie going, which was the story about a Star Wars fan who's gonna finds out he's gonna die, and he wants to get a road trip together to break into the Skywalker Ranch so they can see Episode One because he's not gonna live the six months, you know, to get there. And the film executives are like, okay, but let's take the death out. Well, that's the whole point of the movie, right? (laughs) And and so then then like fast forward, he's like the same kind of execs for Warner Brothers are like, we really like the whole, you know the whole gist of the movie is kind of matrixy, kind of, kind of cool. Can we just take out the eighties crap? And it's like, well, that's the whole thing about the eighties is he's managed to figure out a way to somehow provide a value to eighties trivia. That's like his literate, big literary device. And so you strip out the eighties and it's like any other story. I mean, it would be, it would be just a pale, you know, it would be a shadow of what it could be. That's the point. And so it's really funny to hear that. And scary in a lot of ways because it explains to me why so many movies that have such great IP come out and are just totally crap-tacular, you know?
0: Yeah. You
1: know, they're stripped of their soul and they come out and you're like, wow, that was really, really disappointing and, and yet I'm not surprised. And then like a movie like The Avengers comes out and you're like, oh, so it is kind of possible to do it, you know? Um Yeah. So anyway, I, I get I get the feeling that he's learned enough um and kind of done his time that the you know in the industry that I think they could pull it off and I'm really, really excited to see it. it was interesting too, just to totally dominate the conversation here <laughs> it was really really interesting too that he had mentioned, you know, casting is kind of like the director's thing. So he as a writer doesn't really have the influence. He can't you know, he, he couldn't design Wade to be played by Keanu Reeves, thank God. Uh, Whoa, well, <laughs> I know all about talking heads. Or, you know, whatever. But <laughs> uh, Actually not. But, um, but you know, it's really interesting to, to kind of hear that because it means, you know, the director has a lot more power. Um, but hopefully, you know, he can be influential in that. But I think, you know, casting in a lot of ways can make or break a – can make or break a, a, a movie or a TV series. For instance, game of Thrones, which is a, you know, based on, um, George R. R. Martin's, um, series, the, um, song of ice and fire. It has some really awesome casting, which really makes it happen. Um, likewise, to some
2: extent.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Maybe, yeah. Maybe there's some that you, that you yeah. don't like, but I think a lot, I think <laughs> a lot of the casting is really good. Um, yeah. Yeah. and mm. so, and I think it makes it work. Um, but in in some movies, for instance, Ghost Rider, which has a whole bunch of problems, oh, yeah. um, but the, the least problem they had is they had a whole bunch of great material to draw upon, but they chose to cast Nicolas Cage as Johnny Blaze, and they uh, chose a whole bunch of other terrible things to do as well and executed them horribly awesome. and then made a sequel, which was somehow even more lacking in every way you possible. watched the
0: sequel too i
1: had to come full circle i had to do it it was wow. i was a huge Ghost Rider fan um back in the day with the comics so i had to do it likewise anything with dr strange or moon knight i'd have to also do um but yeah it was you know it was horrible so anyway i think i think he's he's got a lot, he's become very savvy in the way this works, especially when he's talking about how he's writing a screenplay to attract the right director, and then that screenplay will be destroyed and the real screenplay will emerge. Um, you know, that's a pretty advanced concept. You know, I don't think he's, I think he's not jaded, but he's wise to what's going on. He understands the game that's yeah, going mm-hmm. on. And that gives me a whole lot of hope that it could be really awesome and that it wouldn't just depend on the uh the 80s content to attract, you know, older, you know, my generation's viewers to it, but that it might actually, you know, fulfill uh, you know, kind of the potential that the book provides. So, anyway, yeah. I'm done done with my diatribe. <laughs> and well, I'm
2: spent. <laughs> well, a lot of the a lot of these 80s references that occur within the book tied directly to real intellectual properties like, for instance, Rush, The Band, or Back to the Future, what have you. The thing I see as a potential hurdle for a movie adaptation, and I'm not actually sure how they get away with it in the novel, maybe you guys can fill me in, is how do you get away with that copyright-wise to reference, you know, characters that have been created by other Companies, you know, do you understand what I'm asking?
1: Yeah, well, it's just like with Wreck-It Ralph, how when I watched the trailer, I couldn't believe that he's sitting in a super villain or you know a game villain support group with Zangief and um, in Bison, right? Yeah, and and a bunch of other characters. But I was like, wow, how did they manage that? So yeah, it's a it's got to be a bit of a dilemma, and hopefully they can do it without making the movie cost some exorbitant price for all the licensing rights.
2: So that's really what it boils down to is you have to strike a deal with the companies that own those properties. And It sure sounds like it, but
1: it, yeah. I think any company that would appreciate the, I mean, let's face it, Rush is a great band. I'm a huge fan of them,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: this isn't really their decade. I mean, I think they should be pretty darn happy if, if a bunch of their songs were to make it into a movie soundtrack, oh, yeah. you know? I mean, I yeah. think a lot of, a lot of the stuff from the eighties has, it was great and it, it's awesome, but I, I think it would be kind of nice to get the, get the, uh, the general, uh, attention that it would provide. So you could be really greedy and be like, yeah, you know, you, you, you can't have Tom Sawyer. I'm sorry. We really are. We're gonna have to charge you a lot for that. I think they should just kind of go. You know what? This could be cool. We could reinvigorate our fan base and get some attention. Not, not picking on Rush because I, I, like I said, I love the guys. Um, yeah. I can name probably every song they've ever made. I can name the whole catalog because I listen to them a lot. But I'm just saying, <laughs> maybe too much. Some would say.
0: <laughs>
1: but I'm just saying. You know, like I say, this isn't their. This isn't their decade, <laughs> so and yeah, I it's think it's an opportunity. It's definitely an opportunity to shine and to be and to be brought back into the the the, you know the the limelight, <laughs> to use a Rush uh, song title. Um, so anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, pun puns puns are us today.
0: <laughs> <laughs> when you mentioned Game of Thrones and George R. R R Martin, the thing that actually came to my mind was. What if this book were to get a TV miniseries treatment mm. instead of a movie? Oh, yeah. Do you think it would be better or worse?
2: I, I think it would be good because it would afford them more flexibility because you don't have to, this false sense of trying to cram everything into a fixed length, you know, a two-hour movie versus a ten-hour long miniseries it really gives you the benefit of including everything that you truly wanted to from the beginning. So I think it could be cool, but by the yeah. same token, it'd probably be a little bit lower budget and they might not be able to achieve some of the same degree of special effects and whatnot.
0: Yeah. I Cause this, love... this is going to need so much special effects.
2: I yeah. loved his idea
1: of casting. Um, he, he, if he had his way, Ernest said, he would cast people that weren't established actors. And I love that Mm -hmm. because I'm sorry if, if John Travolta played Sorrento, I would not buy it man. (laughs) I would just not dig it. It would be, I'd be thinking about face off and I'd be thinking of, you know, other horrible broken arrow and um, (laughs) welcome back Carter and, and Saturday night, fever and you know what I'm saying? It would just it would kill me. Urban I, cowboy. I just can't imagine. It could but, be wor- worse, it could be Nick Cage. Nick Cage.
0: <laughs>
1: that would probably be the worst. Yeah, Another face off by the way. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it all comes full circle there with that. But yeah, it would be yeah, Arcana Reeves as Sorrento. and oh uh I'm gonna be Godzilla. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think, I think a miniseries or maybe a series would be the way to go. It just, it seems not long enough to me. And it seems like it could be condensed into a super fast action movie, but I don't know if it could make like a 10 episode. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe That's I'm true. off. Um.
2: Well, if it were Ernest Klein writing it, he would probably sprinkle in new items.
1: Well that might be cool. Yeah, yeah. if he
2: could just extend it out
1: and mm-hmm. oh man, that would that might that's a really intriguing idea too.
0: So as we mentioned earlier, the story of the book takes place both in a real world that will need a lot of special effects to realize in a movie, but also in a virtual world. And I was curious what your all what your opinions were, guys of how that world should be created. Because in Oasis, something that's really interesting is the main character not only goes to stuff that's meant to be, it's not meant to be based on any type of uh, era. It's just supposed to be, this is the game world. But there's also times where he goes to places that are designed explicitly to look like an 80s video game. So with that in mind, do you think, that the world of the game should how much of it should be computer animated versus live action.
1: Ooh, great question. Yeah. It's I'll, really I'll, tricky.
2: Yeah. We'll let Jeff lead on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I think I think for the elements that were more conducive to a video game world to go CGI. But if you think about the setting of the actual book it's, you know, 30, 40 years from now, we're, I would think, reaching a point of near photorealism in computer game graphics. So maybe something akin to a movie I know you guys love. I I literally do love, but you guys don't like it too much, and that's Avatar, (laughs) you know, where a good chunk of that movie was CGI, but you didn't really feel that it was. It was kind of seamless blended into the live action components
1: as as much as I dis avatar I was thinking something very similar to that I thought yeah. the the real world sequences for wade's life should be done um kind of like avatar uh slash the avengers where it's just seamless where the stuff that needs to be cgi is cgi like the stacks you know it's it's doubtful you want to build that prop
2: but yeah.
1: um then when they're in game, I think it should be all um, computer graphics, and and I'm, I am I do get faith that it could be done well because of um, the way they did the Hulk in the Avengers and the way they did Avatar with the facial you know recognition and every you know the way they mapped it all out. I think that would be great, and it's just there's so much stuff that's going to be going on in World that's going to require it like when they're at that bar hanging out and people are, you know, like a zero gravity bar or whatever. And I mean, there's just going to be stuff going crazy with it. So I think yeah. that would work really well. And I think it could really be done seamlessly that will require quite the budget I think to pull off, but yeah, I don't know. They seem to, people seem to be able to do it these days and it could, it could really make the movie just shine, you know, with the right artists behind it, I I think it'd be awesome.
2: What do you think Noah?
0: I kind of go back and forth on it because my first inclination was it should be computer animated so that there's no question whatsoever that this is a simulation. But like you said, Jeff, I do feel it's not unreasonable to think that photorealistic graphics in video games would be possible um, what is it, like 32 years from now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How many video game console generations is that? I can't even think. Yeah. It's like seven or eight. <laughs> um,
1: PS oh, yeah. yeah. It's like it's like whenever you look at some of these new game engine tests or like the NVIDIA tests, um, you know, technology tests, You, it's pretty much seamless already. I mean, it's not like quite like what a render farm does with for like Avatar, the Avengers, or something like that, but it's, it's getting there. So yeah, 32 years from now, I think we should be pretty much with real good with real time ray tracing or whatever
0: it is, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And so I guess at that point it'll be up to the director to do some kind of unique filter or way that the color is handled in the real world versus Oasis that just lets people tell without having to spell it out literally mm-hmm. on the screen or something. Game world versus real world. Uh, and I, from that angle, like when they go into something that's really fantastical and wouldn't be possible in the real world, seeing it portrayed as realistically as possible would be pretty darn cool. Yeah. I just – I really want that – reading the book, you always know when they're in the game versus not – and there's even talk about certain visual UI elements that pop that pop up on the screen to accommodate that. So maybe that's how they'll do it. I just re- I can't wait to see how it's done. And I also keep thinking back to Super Eight because that was a movie that did an awesome job of being set in the '80s in terms of the clothes and the vehicles and the environment and the props. And so I, I'm really excited to see in this movie how well the folks do at recreating the 80s vibe like was done in super eight and how interesting or how elaborate is the actual video game world going to be because it's going to require even more in the way of special effects because it's just unreal unreal it's going to be so perfectly manicured like on the school planet or it's going to be so specific like on that 80s arcade planet or it's going to be World of Warcraft, fantastical with the <laughs> castles and and stuff, and then not to mention all the tons and tons of player characters and all their different costumes and ways that they modulate, modify, modif- uh, change their appearance, their avatars that are in the game. It's a tall order.
2: It is. It's very ambitious,
0: but it could be cool. Like, I really am excited to see how they tackle that. I feel that in the Hunger Games, that's an uh, an interesting parallel because. It has a really gritty, awful world, and then it has the capital where everybody's rich and they're just over the top with body modifications and trying to look unique. And then you, of course, have the the angle of watching this game where kids are killing each other. And it was done simply, but it was just satisfying enough that it didn't matter that it didn't feel completely authentic, but it was satisfying to see those very disparate environments and viewpoints presented they conveyed that
2: contrast really well in that movie. I was impressed.
0: Yeah. So maybe Cliff's notes for how ready player one will be. developed. <laughs> Who do you think should direct this movie though? Klein has mentioned that there's lots of high level directors that are checking it out. Mark? Yeah.
1: I, <laughs> boy, I don't, I don't know, but
0: one thing that
1: like it came to mind that, there's a lot of humor in the in the book, and it's subtle but it's it's there right yeah and whoop. so on the director thing i i've I asked myself the question, and i don't really have a good answer for it, so what I want to do is take David Lynch, who is actually famous for a lot of great movies in the eighties yeah and I, I want to um merge his dna um <laughs> with uh with mike uh Judge. Oh yeah. And who did um Idiocracy, which Beavis is one and of a, and Beavis and Butthead. and King Office of the Space Hill. and King of the Hill. Right. Yep. Uh, well and, and I think Office Space because of all the angst about corporate stuff, you know, but um mix those two guys together to form like the perfect director and I think you'd be set. Um I don't know. It's a crazy idea. Maybe a little Michael Mann <laughs> thrown in there. I'm not sure. But uh, that's... <laughs> so, yeah, it's not feasible, but maybe, maybe you know, maybe we could create some kind of expert system that will just be like our virtual director for this. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. What do you guys think? Who who do you think would be a director worth, worth trusting with this?
2: Well, I think perhaps it's too fresh in my mind, but... Um... Joss Whedon, the writer director of Avengers. He, wow. Yeah. He nails a lot of those witticisms and keeps mm-hmm. comical elements interspliced with just incredible action. I think in both of the both of which are heavy throughout Ready Player One. But like I said, I have a bit of a bias toward Joss Whedon. I love Buffy, Angel, the whole gamut. at oh, Firefly. Yeah.
1: Have you have you guys heard? Uh, this is a huge tangent, but you know that, that's what we're known for. About <laughs> the uh, the theory about the uh, the end of the Avengers.
0: I have no. heard about.
1: It. You have.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard about it, Jeff? No, I'm not sure what you're speaking.
1: There, of. There's a theory that Loki wanted to lose. That it was a uh, oh what's it called? It's the something or other gambit where a super villain comes up with a a plan where whatever he usually has two outcomes and, and either outcome is actually what he wants. Oh. And so they there's a lot of talk and And I hope it's not a huge disappointment. Like when all of the fans of the Matrix thought that there was a lot more going on than there was. And then the Matrix 3 came out and we were all like, oh, no, there wasn't really. (laughs) But the thought is that Loki wanted everything was a plan to get him into Asgard because that's his ultimate goal is to take it over. And he was exiled. And so his whole plan was win or lose. He was going back to Asgard where he would eventually get Odin's forgiveness Blah blah blah, and continue his nefarious plans, and uh, and so that's kind of the guess. And if so, because there are a lot of subtle hints, like the smirk at the end, there's a there's and, and just how passive he is the whole time. Every time they show him, you know, with Thor's got him in the hand, giant shackles or whatever, he's just got this kind of like yeah I'm all right look. And you're like yeah, gosh wow. You know there's, they kind of go out of their way to show him being just really passive, and then he does at one point have this like kind of smile. And so that's that's kind of the thought, that that the guy is more of a genius than we ever gave him credit for, and that it's actually setting up either Thor 2 or the Avengers 2. My hope is it's setting up Thor 2, because really I hope that we can move beyond Loki at some point as a villain. But yeah, uh, it's, it's a agree. really cool idea, I think. I don't know. Did I do that justice, Noah? That was kind Yeah, of definitely. That, of...
0: was that was great.
1: That's yeah, really so... clever. Uh, if that's true, if it's true, and not just us fans all going,
0: hmm. This would be super cool.
1: Wow. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, it yeah, would really cool. Oh,
0: wow. Cause that was a, that movie had a great story where it wasn't completely predictable. There was some nice twists to it. Scenes where stuff happens and you don't, you, that you didn't expect. And it's like, wow, this is cool. And it just keeps you engaged. And I would be excited to see the writers continue to have that same kind of cleverness and try to still surprise us.
1: Oh yeah, Absolutely.
0: Would you want surprises in a Ready Player One movie? Oh, like... Let's say the third gate is completely different, for instance, but everything else is the same. Ooh. Or the ending's changed. That happens a lot in movies. Yeah, that's a good point.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think as long as it's at um, Ernest Klein's discretion, I'd be happy with whatever happened.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't want him to mess with the ending. I... I really liked the ending. I know some people have been critical of it,
0: but yeah, I think it surprised me. I'm like, what's your problem guys? <laughs> I know
1: it really is a good, it's a great ending and, and it's done well and it's not hurried and it's not, you know, I don't yeah, know. It
0: just touches all the right bases. I agree. Yeah. Um, I, Jeff, I agree. I, I didn't, I hadn't initially thought about Joss Whedon, but he is a great choice for director. I, I went into Avengers a little bit skeptical because I, there are some Joss Whedon's things that I really like, and there's some that I'm like, oh, I know his heart was in it, but I don't. I, I wasn't really satisfied. Yeah. But he really demonstrated that he can play in the big leagues of major summer blockbusters and just knock it out of the park and do something really phenomenal, uh, which with a really challenging pro- project. So definitely, with his, I'm sure that he is as geeked about this book as so many of the rest of us but that said my actual first inclination it was a bit implied i suppose from what i said earlier is i'd actually pick jj J. abrams on this nice because he's demonstrated that he can do stuff that's got a really strong sense of visual style such as star trek and make, do a good job of managing that he's good with and in, integrating humor into action movies to touch back on mark's point which i felt that mission impossible three Ghost product, protocol head. And he's just good with major special effects stuff, whether it was in Cloverfield or star Trek, I think he'd be, he, he, given that he's worked, he works so much on lost and lots of other really oh, mythological yeah. based storylines, including the Alcatraz one that flopped. I think he would have a real appreciation and respect for, how much our real-world 80s pop culture builds the mythology of this novel, and then it grows from there. And I think he'd be keen, just as I actually think the guys that you've mentioned, both of you have mentioned, but I think that also J.J. Abrams would be keen on preserving that and really delivering it in a way that would satisfy fans.
2: Yeah, he's he's kind of a heir apparent to Spielberg, I think. But in that scenario, as long as he doesn't get overzealous with the lens flare, I'll be fine. <laughs> uh, he, he does it so much he the did. greatest the greatest innovation yeah of our
0: star time. trek did have way too, yeah I
2: was like blinded by the like in star the trek. inside of ship
0: it's like yeah. what is going on here <laughs> lights are not that bright yeah so moving on from the movie something that i was really interested to ask you guys about was and and it was it was so cool that actually ernest klein touched on this at his book signing whether or not there could be a sequel to this book, and would that be good or not? And I really liked Klein's perspective that he likes stories that are self-contained and that they end and there's not some cheesy cliffhanger that you have to wait five years or ten years or wait for someone else to be born and take over the storyline and take care of it. He likes the whole self-contained story, but if the paperback does well and the movie does well, which is quite possible, and the publisher's already really excited about this, landing right on the bestseller list, both hardcover and uh, paperback cover. A sequel is possible. There could even be a trilogy. Where do you think that this story could go?
1: Hmm. That's a really good question.
0: Maybe it, it could be about the trying to maintain the trying to maintain control over the Oasis or deciding to pull the plug on it or something like that. Maybe it's it's a, a, a challenge more related to the dystopian world, the real world, or the evil corporation doing more things to try to keep being evil in relation to taking control of the game. There. Hey
1: man, innovative online industries is not evil. They're just misunderstood
2: <laughs> <laughs> and they are innovative. So, you know, yeah. or maybe there could be some sort of either, deliberately concocted or accidental release of some form of a virus in the oasis and it just keeps propagating and expanding and blowing up and wade and his cohorts have to band together to to defeat it or something like that i could could see some coolness there
0: that's a really cool idea yeah it would be cool
1: yeah i o i frustrated by their inability to you know just win comes up with some nefarious plot to you know get all viral on them
0: yeah well, that'd be pretty <laughs> cool I'm also intrigued to see if this concept of mining nostalgia to write a book that's fictional and it's not a traditional it's not a historical fiction which that definitely happens plenty, but it's it's a real mashup type of story where it takes a bunch of stuff, collage style, and, and builds something new off of it. I'm kind of intrigued to see if a new subgenre or what type of echoes this book and its success will have amongst other authors. The most recent example that I can think of, and I'm sure there are others out there, was with Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which resulted in a whole flood of classic books being repurposed with modern pop culture and uh pulp fiction type aspects that because i I remember being really excited about that first book and then thinking wow naturally he wrote the next one no there's like about 20 different authors that have jumped onto the same boat and written similar books they repurposed jane Austen novels they repurposed uh, Anna Karenica, however you pronounce that. <laughs> um, just all sorts of books out there have been redone. And then they've expanded even further. And the guy who wrote Pride and Prejudice and Zombies went on. His second book was Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. And then he just released something else that's about the three wise men Whoa. being some kind of badasses.
1: Wow, that's cool. That's crazy. Which
0: is really weird. Yeah, it's, it's quite insane. Um, and I'm really intrigued to see... If we'll see something similar with Ready Player One, do you think that we'll see some author that's like, I'm going to do this except it's going to be with the 90s or I'm going to do it and it's going to be with the 70s or or something like that? Do you think there'd be – that there's enough to this concept to do books that take a similar approach? Maybe it's not necessarily a video game, but it's some other way of pulling in a built-in audience base who may have nostalgia for a specific era.
2: I think it would be pretty interesting personally because if this were to happen against the decade of the 90s, I would I would be jumping for joy. Like that's my more cognizant era. I was born in 82, so I have a lot of nostalgia there, but it was after the era itself. It wasn't me living and remembering directly within it. So I think the 90s would be cool.
1: That would be cool yeah i I would dig the seventies too would be kind of like cool not that that hasn't been done what a lot of there's a lot of you know movies and stuff about the seventies, but
2: that seventies yeah. show,
1: yeah Yeah. Um, and you know like there's because there's like a you know a lot to draw on from the the whole World War Two thing, the the forties, <laughs> kind of done. Yeah. You know, after that, it becomes a little more difficult. But um, I don't think anyone's wanted to get nostalgic about the the two thousands yet.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm like, not sure. I, I want to see anything related to the 2000s, <laughs> Frankly.
2: Yeah. Well, it's probably too fresh. I'm sure 20 years from now, we'll remember items from that era.
0: <laughs> the good ones.
2: Upon.
1: Yeah. That's yeah. true. That's really true. Ricky Martin, man. Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. It was living well, La Vida also when
0: Channel Massive started that's true in the 2000s <laughs> back,
1: back before we became a multimedia global conglomerate
0: <laughs> when we were just a
1: simple gaming podcast
0: yeah <laughs> i'm sure our <laughs> listeners some of them might be asking themselves that same thought right now <laughs> right during this very episode <laughs> right?
1: oh they're going they're rethinking their lives have i really listened to two hundred and three (laughs) episodes. Why did I do that to myself? Maybe I should go re-listen to them all.
0: Find some truth. (laughs) Well, I think that wraps up our discussion on the book and the movie and the book industry, all the different stuff, but we want to wrap up the show with a quick little segment next where we're just going to rattle off some of our favorite Icons, memories, things from the 80s. That's next. (music) To round out our fantastic, totally radical 80s segment or 80s episode of Channel Massive, we are going to have a pure 80s segment where we're going to talk about our favorite things from the 80s. And I'm really intrigued I wish I knew, Mark, how many of our listeners this is relevant for and how many of them are like, oh gosh, these guys are yeah. so old. <laughs>
2: yeah, fi- fire up your Wikipedias.
0: Yeah,
1: or they might be older than us.
0: That's true. That is also possible. It, I'm really intrigued. I, we don't know what the age demographics are. We just That
1: was don't. one of the coolest things um, Ernest mentioned was um, younger people reading his book were like, they just read the book while they had Wikipedia open. And YouTube. And they were able to like reconstruct the 80s
0: (laughs) and gain a respect for it that they didn't have
1: or a disrespect because there's a lot to hate, too.
0: But But not in this segment. Yes. We're going to talk about our favorite things, ladies, and we'll start out with a really obvious choice and talk about favorite 1980s movie. And Mark has said that he doesn't even have to think about a lot of these different topics we're going to run through. And listeners, by all means, if you want to share your own, throw them in the comments on the website or send them into mail, mail at com. But first up, Mark, what is your favorite 80s movie?
1: Well, it's, it's really tough because uh, it was definitely science fiction. Um, mm-hmm. But so I really, really, really loved um, – episode five of star Wars, which came out in 1980 yes. *The yeah. empire strikes back. Right. That, that was like, um, just such a awesome movie. And, and I was, it was written by Lee Brackett. It was, it was, it was way darker. It was the darkest one. Um, of the entire, of every, any star Wars that's ever been done. It's the darkest as far as theme and content, and Lee Brackett took it to a much higher level than George Lucas, I dare say. Um and so it really to me just it, it was it was really cool. The whole the whole, you know, Luca, I am your father thing. It was just awesome. And also up there for me was Dune, which was written uh which yes. came out in nineteen eighty four, which I I was I was already you know in, in the 80s I was an established um sci-fi dork right
0: <laughs>
1: and and I had not read the the Dune books I'd read a lot of like I was reading all kinds of stuff at the time a lot of fantasy a lot of sci-fi somehow I had missed Frank Herbert's stuff completely and so this I saw that there was going to be this movie called Dune that would come out I I convinced my dad to go watch it with me my mom wouldn't go my my dad and I went and they handed us out at the at the theater they handed us out these like um oh what do you call it when you go to like see a musical like performance?
0: A or a playbill? Uh,
1: a playbill kind of thing, yeah. And it explained the characters' names. And what they did and it was like
0: That's pretty cool.
1: It was such that an is. advan it was such a crazy movie that they felt like you had to have a program a program, that was the word I was looking for. You had to have a program to even understand what the hell was going on with this thing. And the the movie was cast really well. It had people like Patrick Stewart in it, Kyle McLaughlin of course. And it was directed by um, David Lynch, which I mentioned who I mentioned earlier. And it was and it was stunning in the way that they approached sci fi. Things were super ornate and, and like the Ornithopters didn't look like they could actually fly in the air and the you know, everything was just it was this really super stylized, weird kind of movie with some really dark content, which again I was starting to really appreciate. And so to me that was like um I mean, that probably, I really, I, I mentioned, I started, I, I led in with The Empire Strikes Back, but most influential movie uh, to, to date that I've seen probably was Dune. And then I, you know, of course, went and read all the stuff by Frank Herbert and was like, oh my God, this guy was such a genius. And his movie was actually pulled off by David Lynch and nobody got it. You know, it was pretty much not a big commercial success. But for a few small groups of followers, it was something awesome and wonderful. So, that was mine.
2: It also has Sting, right?
1: It has Sting. Oh, I forgot that. It has Sting yeah. playing Fade Ratha <laughs> with, the, with the Baron going,
0: Fade,
1: beautiful Fade, which is one of the most disturbing things you'll ever see. <laughs> and then... And then, um, and also, it has uh, Muad'Dib, who's the protagonist, his younger sister Alia, who's very disturbing, saying, "My brother is coming with many fremen warriors," which is also <laughs> incredibly disturbing, you know. And um, it, it's just it's cra It's a crazy, you know, crazy ride, <laughs> crazy adventure.
0: Lots of quotable moments. I, I do love it. Yeah. When you you and Jason make the the Dune quotes, they're my favorite. They're my favorite.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I have,
2: a, I have a severe guilty admission that I have never seen Dune.
1: Oh, my gosh.
2: All yeah. right. All right,
1: Jeff. So once about every five years, I, I get together like a group of friends, and we screen some movies. I've done this to Noah once now. And there's whiskey involved. And most people come out of it going, that was way more horrible than I thought it would be. And so <laughs> The, the last time it was um,
0: – oh, what was it? It was a double feature.
1: It was a double feature. It was Hellride and
2: – Wasn't it Machete or something, I think?
0: Machete. I
1: remember. Yeah, it was Machete yeah. and Hellride. Yeah, it was a double feature. And everybody came out of it with their minds, like, blown that I actually thought either of them were cool. But combined <laughs> it was way, way worse. Like <laughs> – so, so Jeff, so you're invited officially for when we do Dune and whatever else I find there that'll be. It'll be the director's cut too, which is
0: like <laughs> Is that like three hours?
1: Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> wow.
0: I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, that'll be good. I'll be looking
1: for Sting. I'm a big fan. You're a big fan of Sting? Good. Well, you'll you'll enjoy Sting. He's great in it. So,
0: Anyway, yeah. that's my... What about you guys? Well, for me, I've was I spent a few years or several of the year, several of the eighties years, of the eighties overseas in Germany. And I remember when we were getting ready to move back to the United States, being told that there was more than one television station. <laughs> so I, I was just, I was stunned. I could not imagine more than one television station because over in Germany, on Army Base. There is only one station. <laughs> and it's like kinda of like PBS mixed with I don't know, just a regular station. So Starring, I got be, starring
2: David Hasselhoff.
0: Yeah. Well I, I got to be like Sesame Street, but uh I didn't G.I. Joe wasn't available yet there were commercials for G.I. Joe toys. And I was really surprised to hear that there was actually a G.I. Joe cartoon, <laughs> which was ostensibly created to sell the toys. But I'm just like, wow, there's actually. And it's like, I was really sad that I couldn't ever watch the cartoon, but then I found out that there was. And I was like, wow. But all that said, it also meant that my ability to consume or see some of the cooler movies was a little bit more limited. You know, I was a little bit younger. And it was up to my parents' discretion. But. Movies that quickly come to mind are definitely, as Mark suggested, Empire Strikes Back. That is definitely up there. I liked Return of the Jedi, too, but I was also a kid, so I'm not sure if what that had to do with it. I'll need to watch it again now that I've got the Blu rays. I haven't got to it yet. I also really loved the Indiana Jones movies a lot. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I definitely idolized Indiana Jones as a kid and wanted to be Indiana Jones. Uh, but my favorite movies all start with G. That would be. Gremlins and nice. Ghostbusters and Goonies. Uh, yeah. Of all those movies, they really personify the 80s for me just as much as those other movies. But... Oh,
1: the Gremlins. You know. I have to say, every time Christmas rolls around, I think that the Gremlins is like a great thing to add to the 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 <laughs> like viewing list of Christmas shows. Like there's the Grinch, and there's all this stuff. But don't you think the Gremlins should be like standard like holiday fare to get you in the mood? Yeah,
0: totally. <laughs> well, it's it's timed right for that. I'm not sure if it's something that you would set the kids down to watch. Like, yes,
1: yeah, it's, it's
0: about Christmas.
1: It's like wintry and there's snow. There's just, the cute little just Mogwai. Just, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's all cute, and then you just stop it, like at a certain point. Like you're like at 23 minutes and 37 seconds, that's where we end it, and we move on to, you know, how the Grinch stole Christmas, or Charlie Brown Christmas, or Frosty the Snowman.
0: At the point where you see the gremlin's red eyes shining out of the Christmas tree.
1: <laughs> I think it's the part where they come out of the swimming pools the part <laughs> where the movie takes a turn for the better, but <laughs> for the you know, the, are the, are the bar sequence where that bar is just destroyed. That's
0: so awesome. <laughs> um, but of those three, I would probably choose Goonies. Nice. Favorite. I even got to, I went to see it at the film on the rocks over here in Denver, Colorado listeners. Oh, nice. At the Red Rocks Amphitheater, which is this gigantic, naturally occurring theater structure that's had some bleachers put in, they'll show old movies during the summertime. And I went to see a showing of the Goonies. And it was kind of loud because, you know, it's outdoors and people are like, "Whoa, I'm stoned and drunk. <laughs> and,
1: uh,
0: was that was really- what Noah said. I remember he was texting
1: everyone. <laughs> I'm stoned and drunk. And all,
0: uh, I'm all caps. All
1: caps. All just, yeah, all caps. <laughs> With like zeroes for O's and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's disturbing.
0: But I just, even that said, I just have fond memories whenever I see that movie and come back to it. It just takes me back to being in the eighties. And there's still from Ready Player One, there's movies that are referenced that I wish that I, I, I need to go back and say, I've never seen Lady Hawk. I believe I saw Red Dawn and War Games. That, but I don't really remember them. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, But uh, my favorite Scoonies.
1: Hey, I, I just realized what's going to be the second part of the double feature, and it's an '80s show, and I can't believe I didn't mention it. Can I? Can I go ahead and? and... Max Headroom? Of course. No, no, no. Oh. It's it's this really, really bad movie called The Keep, which came out in '83. It was directed by Michael Mann. Get some of the cast members: Scott Glenn, Gabriel Byrne, Ian McKellen, and a guy named Jürgen Prochnow, who was. Duke Leto and Dune, but also was like the, the German or the, he was Jesus in the seventh sign. Anyway, it was, it had music all done by Tangerine dream, which is totally 80s. You know, Michael, Michael Mann,
0: right. And,
1: and the, the, the the book was, was done by F. Paul Wilson, who has said of the movie visually intriguing, but otherwise utterly incomprehensible. So, it kind of goes with ernest's description of what happens to books when they become movies but it does have some sequences that are just totally like crazy and i think it would be and actually the i realized too when you guys see my um skype face on here that's actually from the keep
0: really oh, wow. i had no idea it's yeah, i was
2: wondering that
1: yeah um so so yeah that would be the double feature it would be dune and the keep and no one would get out of there uh, feeling good anymore. And what's really cool is the budget for the movie was six million back in the eighties. And guess while. what? It, guess what? The the uh, U.S. box office take was it was three point six million. Oh, so it was a huge success all around. Anyway, fiably <laughs> flopped. Yes. Yeah.
0: I. You know what? I was that reminded me of just hearing you talk about that was Lair of the White Worm.
1: Oh my God. <laughs> oh. That was go.
0: quite the hilarious movie.
1: <laughs> that's another good one. Yeah, I don't Just think that's alone, right? <laughs> the title alone makes you go, "Hmm, that's interesting. I wonder what. Wonder if it'll have a lot of sequences with trains going into tunnels. <laughs> <laughs> what could that possibly be
2: about?
0: I don't know, but I want, I'm intrigued. Anyway, all right, Jeff, what's your favorite 80s movie?
2: Um. I've got a handful of them. Um, As I stated before, I was just a wee little lad in that decade, so most of my memories are vague aside from the super brilliant ones, but I've got Never Ending Story.
1: Oh, that was so Oh, the Cocker Spaniel in
2: Space. Yes, (laughs) Felicor.
1: That's classic.
2: Um, I've got some overlap there, obviously, with Noah and Goonies. That's the classic, although I wanted to spread the tradition, and I showed my girlfriend's younger brother that movie, about a year ago. I forgot there was a lot of cursing in that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's what, It was surprising. I thought yeah, that
2: too. Yeah, PG-13. Last year. So I was like, oh, wow. Um, and then apparently I also have some sort of fixation on Val Kilmer because I really love Top Secret.
1: Oh, God, that's awesome. I forgot about Top Secret. Yeah,
2: that's a great, really funny movie. Also, that, can you drive a spike through a six
1: uh, – what is it? Drive a spike through a, a – Six two by four with your penis?
2: No. <laughs> well a girls gotta have standards. <laughs> sorry. And then continuing the Val Kilmer theme, I really love the movie Real Genius. Oh, that's Real Genius. Sorry. I yeah.
1: was way off. Yeah, top
2: <laughs> sorry man. I'll just <laughs> you now. And then uh I really don't remember it vividly at all, but I have these vague recollections of a movie called Cloak and Dagger.
0: Oh, yeah, that was so cool. That was a kid's movie. It was awesome.
2: Was it? Okay, cool. Maybe that's why I was able to see it at that age. (laughs) And then, at least with the short decision time, I think my favorite movie of the 80s is a a movie with David Bowie.
0: Oh, gosh, I know what you're going to say. And
2: a young Jennifer Connelly.
0: Cat people?
2: Labyrinth, yes. (laughs) I came up with the worst possible David Bowie movie.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Labyrinth was one of my all-time favorite movies. Did that have kid. Tom Cruise in it, too? No, no that, that was Legend. A,
1: that was Legend. Oh, yeah, which yeah, Which was yeah, also yeah, yeah. good.
0: That had Tim Curry.
1: Yeah. Oh, yes, good. Tim Curry was awesome.
0: And Tangerine Dream soundtrack. <laughs> Blade Runner didn't come up. I, sh- I, I thought of Blade oh yeah, said something. Oh, man, yeah. So There's so Dream many good Dream movies. No, wait, Blade Runner's jealous, isn't it? Yeah, Vangelis
2: but, Vangelis. but, I mean, talk about a great movie.
0: Oh, yeah. Alright. Yeah,
2: I'm sure, I'm sure we missed a lot. We'd have to do a second round sometime.
0: Definitely. Favorite 80s video game and or system. <laughs> this is hard. Uh, I got started in video games in the 80s and, uh, I think my first system was the Atari cartridge system where they had the paddles and then we upgraded to an Atari, and then another Atari with the you know the little traditional small black joystick with the red button, and then my dad got a fancy joystick. And the sad thing about my time with the Atari, and I don't know, I think part of it's be- the sad thing about my time with the Atari is I don't remember a lot of the games that I played, and I played a lot of games. And <laughs> <laughs> part of that is because I was little, and the other part of it is that. The games that were available were not all <laughs> legally, <laughs> legally available. Um, <laughs> and so there were just like lots of games on a single disc. And so it's I don't really remember. I remember really liking Joust, though, and oh, yeah. really liking Ballblazer. That was quite cool. And Pitfall stuck with me. And I, I played Defender and Galaga and Space Invaders, but joust really stuck with me but then the nintendo came out and that was like the whole second half of the 80s and there were so many great video games on the nes and i think out of all those the one that had the greatest impact on me was the original final fantasy because i tried zork on the atari and on pc i think i tried some other No, I didn't. I didn't on PC. I didn't get into PC until the the 90s, but I tried some other story-based games and they were just way beyond my intelligence. (laughs) And yet Final Fantasy, that was the first really intense super long game that required a major commitment that it was the first game I purchased with my own money. Uh, It was birthday money and I just loved it. It was one of those games like Mark was talking about earlier where I had to make maps and, strategize and I was really engrossed with the story and I was so frustrated because of the localization. You spend all these hours in this game and you get to this final scene that's supposed to explain what's going on and via a combination of bad localization and only so many characters being able to fit into the text boxes, it makes absolutely no fucking sense whatsoever. (laughs) There's all this time travel and time travel loops and infinite loops and they try to the main villain tries to explain how it all happens. And it wasn't until today when I read on the Wikipedia about it, there's one aspect of the entire story that I didn't even catch. That's how badly it was translated. I'm like, wow, the story's even cooler now. Uh, but yeah, Final Fantasy. That's well,
2: it's cool to have that revelation some 20 years later.
0: Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, what was your favorite video game from the
2: That's a tough one. You mentioned Joust. That's a great one. I I still play that today when I get the opportunity. Um, For me, I was more cognitively aware toward the NES days. So on that platform, I I would say uh, probably the original Contra, perhaps.
0: That was a great game. Yeah. And even with the
2: Konami code, I don't think I ever got all the way through it wasn't skilled enough yet.
0: It was a really, really hard game.
2: Yeah. How about you, Mark?
1: Well, I'm just kind of in a... It, it's a big quandary. Uh, <laughs> there were so many wonderful games that I played in in the 80s, you know. Mostly for the Commodore 64 was kind of my platform of choice, and then it went to the Amiga 500, but um i even had a vic 20 which came out like in so i was like a total commodore guy um but when i think of the kind of the two games that i probably clocked the most time in um <clears throat> it was probably like ultima 4 which was an R- rpg that came out in 85 and i i um i remember playing it before i had a commodore 64 i would like I had like a uh an illegal version of it and I would there was a a music computer at my my school and um I would go <laughs> I would go and say oh I was going I'm going to work on some you know like working on my relative pitch or my perfect pitch with some of these trainer programs and instead of doing that I would be I would like load up Ultima 4 and play it nice um, and and then the light, the school library also had an Apple II, so I'd go up there and like be like, yeah, don't mind me. <laughs> and then I got my Commodore, my VIC 20 was getting a little long in the tooth at that point and was limited. And I got I got a 64, and then I got my own copy of Ultima IV. And so it's it's kind of that. And then um, the uh, Gold Box games came out, like Pool of Radiance and Curse of the Azure Bonds, and those just blew my mind. And those were in later in the 80s, but. Um, So mine were all, you know, kind of like RPG type games um, and just loved them. And, you know, I think before that I had an Atari 2600 and probably played way more uh, Warlords than any other person in history. (laughs) Just I would get my friends over and I'd be like, let's play Warlords. And they're like, they didn't want to play with me because I'd worked myself up to the point to where I was just pretty much indomitable at it, and I'd be like, come on! And I'd try to handicap myself, you know, but I was just like, warlords, warlords, warlords. All the, I just couldn't get enough of that game. I thought it was, like, super cool, so. That kind yeah. of,
2: That kind of breaks my heart a little bit with the Ultima, because that was a franchise that kind of survived every generation video game-wise, but as far as I know, it's kind of no more. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's just... Yeah. Ultima Online still lives on, but um, the kind of standalone RPGs, single player, don't. Yeah. And even then, I I don't know what the player base is for Ultima Online, but it can't be
0: uh, too amazing. (laughs) So our next favorite 80s topic is 80s, other general 80s game experiences, whether it was with arcades or Dungeons and Dragons. Did you have any memorable experiences or favorite moments related to that I outside was strictly a personal game time?
1: Ooh, ooh, I got to go. <laughs> um, there was a, there was a, so I, I, um, so I, I did a lot of office work for my parents in the eighties. So I'd get out of school and I'd ride the bus downtown and then I'd, I'd go to my parents' office and do some filing or whatever Um, You know, this was about the time they were starting to get a computer to automate a bunch of the stuff, but I still was, you know, like, doing – they were executive recruiters, so I was, like, trying to manually match, like, Apple – you know, Available talent with job positions and stuff by looking at resumes and stuff.
0: So I'd do that. And
1: I'd, <laughs> yeah, it was a great way to make money. So I'd, I would do that and I'd file. They had a lot of filing to be done and it was just general office work, you know, like secretarial stuff. And I would do that and then I would get, I would take my money and which was, they, you know, it was basically like, uh, you know, a sweatshop, and I would take, I would take <laughs> the money that they gave me, and I would either spend it on comic books or video games. And so, there was a um, there was an arcade that opened up downtown, just up the street, not very far. So I'd go over there, and they had some really cool things. Like if you if you you, you would you would instantly take your money and translate it into tokens, and they would track your tokens. And if as you got to different break uh, different points. As far as tokens that you traded in, um, you could then apply that to towards buying stuff. So like they had some like tapes of different bands and stuff, and this one was like Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, and I really wanted that tape. And so like did I got. did love rock and roll at the time. I did love rock and roll, yeah. <laughs> and her, her stunning rendition of Little Drummer Boy. And so I got. Managed to spend enough money with my with that that I got the Joan Jet album and I got like a Yes album, which Yes was way more influential actually than Joan Jet ever was, but it was still cool. But um, I got to play at a, they had a sit down table. I got to play games like Warlords and a bunch of other stuff that they had at the arcade. So that was like my my big memorable. You know, game related thing was just like getting doing the work as quickly as possible, but hopefully with good quality and getting paid because they'd pay me like daily. (laughs) It was really kind of silly. And then it was just an allowance, but you know, and then I'd run up there and spend my dollar or whatever I'd made at the arcade instantaneously. But it was somehow fulfilling and cool. So that's
2: cool. What about you, Jeff? Um, I don't know. I probably it probably wasn't directly in the 80s. It was probably in the 90s sometime. But I actually mentioned this before on the show once. Is we had the Intellivision and circa I don't know mid 90s. We brought that back out, and I pretty vividly remember playing games like Bump and Jump and Shark Shark with.
0: Oh yeah, Bump and Jump. I remember that.
2: Yeah, Shark Shark was great too. That was that's a good game mechanic that I think would translate well to the mobile space where bigger fish defeats smaller fish. You get bigger and bigger and eventually try to defeat the sharks. And it's real tense and suspenseful. It was a killer
1: Xbox arcade game like that. Oh, really? Yeah. My, my son's really good at it. That's cool. I love
2: that cyclical nature of game mechanics. So yeah, like, like I said, that wasn't directly in the eighties, but I remember playing a lot of intelligent, in television with my brothers and it's a very very fond memory i have
0: that's pretty cool
2: yeah how about you it, Noah?
0: it's even if it is out of yeah at <laughs> yeah, a different time it's still relevant because it's safe stuff and when you mentioned shark shark i had to look it up and i, I actually remember i have played that as well oh yeah nice yeah Wow. It's weird. See, I told you, I just do not remember (laughs) very much of what happened. You played it illegally. (laughs) Um, For me, I, I I didn't get a chance to actually do many group party game sessions in the 80s. It didn't really happen. Like, in the late 80s, people would come over and we'd all play Nintendo together. But the arcades were something that's like if I wanted to go, my mom had to be with me, and it was just kind of weird, and I got kind of nervous because I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Everybody's bigger than me, and these games look really hard, <laughs> and if I wanted to leave, I'd have an anxiety attack, I guess. <laughs> but I did <laughs> love going to Showbiz Pizza. It was really cool, and I'd love it when we would go bowling particularly because there were always – pinball games and a little arcade section for you to go in and check out. And I would always have to play a game or two over there. And it was different spots throughout the eighties. I don't have any one particular game that stuck out, but I remember always being excited to have a chance to play arcade games because there was a time when there was such a huge disparity between the graphical quality of an arcade game versus what you could actually play on oh, yeah. your home yeah. Yeah. consoles. It used to be such a huge, huge gulf because those machines were constantly being updated and they were new every year. That's definitely not the case anymore, unfortunately, but it made it something special and it gave you a good reason to want to save up a little bit of change to play those games that no matter what, that's the only place you could play them at. You couldn't play them at home. And so we're... We really have quite the luxury to have the type of games across so many mediums and so many different styles that we do now, but thinking back, it wasn 't that long ago when it was quite different
1: yeah. I, I, hearing you say that reminded me of um one other thing I did as far as gaming in the eighties that was kind of funny was uh, we used to play Dungeons and Dragons over the phone. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it'd be like, you know, a DM and hopefully, a player, obviously. Hopefully not
2: uh, long distance in, in that. No.
1: <laughs> no, but I had a I had a really good friend that um lived across town from me and you know, I, I in the 80s I didn't have a car. I was too young. So I would uh we would get a we'd get on the phone and we would go through like a, a you know, a campaign where one of one or the other would be the DM. Or if we had multiple people at one location, we'd like <laughs> – we, we didn't even have a conference phone. We'd just try to like both hear it at the same time. So <laughs> cheesy but funny but like so cool at the time, you know. It was just so – it was all in your imagination anyway. But, um, you know, that was – I can was, definitely
0: uh, admire that. That's some dedication to pull that off. Oh, you know? yeah.
1: And then we do – you know, we'd, make, we'd talk our parents into a sleepover and then we'd have just, you know, like an all – it would be like, you know – Twenty-four hours of nothing but D and D session or something like <laughs> so that. So
0: cool, you know.
1: Um, but you know that was that was definitely one of the other other facets was not just video games, but RPGs were really kind of in their heyday back then. So there was a lot to choose from.
0: You know, it's funny, yeah. Mark, because that's kind of come full circle. People, yeah, like oh yeah, like Jeff even are yeah. playing. RPGs or playing D&D not with people in the same room but thanks to the magic of the internet.
2: Yeah. Yep. That's yeah, we, that's we played over so. Google Plus on a Google Hangout and it works pretty seamlessly.
1: I could totally see it cuz you really don't need, you know, anything other than your imagination to to play a to, if you have a good DM and stuff, I mean, mm-hmm. there's definitely aids to assist you, you know, to kind of show what you're doing you know, with the rooms and, you know, all, the, all that stuff, but, yeah, it's really, it was really cool, it was a cool, it's a really cool memory I have of, and in fact, the first time I ever played D&D was over the phone with my friend that lived, like, all the way across town, Nice. and it was like, I was just, like, blown away, I was like, oh my gosh, so I went to, like, J C JCPenney's, and spent my hard earned secretarial work money buying <laughs> uh, the original Dungeons and Dragons game, which they actually had, which was crazy if you think about it. Not some yeah. specialty yeah. boutique.
2: But uh,
1: yeah, it's pretty wild.
2: And, and listeners, there are allusions to Dungeons and Dragons in Ready Player One if we haven't convinced you yet to read this book.
1: In
0: fact,
2: my favorite module ever is the first one
0: mentioned. Nice. Yeah. Wow. I thought it sounded familiar.
1: That's why I always as I read that book I always thought this, did this Ernest Klein guy live like around the corner from me or something because I was totally, i he's totally <laughs> talking about stuff where I've
2: been, you know. Is he is he your Tyler Durden?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so tired today. I don't know. <laughs> the soap. I don't know. And medical waste bags around here. I don't know. Anyway. And a black guy. But so so our next the next part of our our eighties our thing is um our favorite fashion trend from the eighties.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh dear.
1: There could so, be So uh
0: Noah, what's your favorite? Gosh. There's a couple things that stick out in my mind um related to clothing. But I'll go with the, uh, the hair thing of the mullet because I've actually always thought the mullet was pretty cool. <laughs> and then it just became commandeered by white trash people and it became a white trash thing. And I'm like, why did you guys have to ruin that? There's really not much wrong with the mullet. And what's weird is I'm seeing more and more mullets that I think are not ironic. And they're on regular old people that don't look like they're trying to be trashy or anything. So they're going to come back. They are. Yeah. yeah. I think molds are pretty awesome. I always wanted one, but I never grew one. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's awesome. What about you, Jeff? <laughs> the only thing I can think of is, I don't know if it's very valid or not, but maybe the David Byrne big suit that he wore in the talking Heads. Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess yeah, that's yeah. not technically a trend since it was pretty unique to him, but it was cool. Nonetheless, that's, yeah, that was a big ass cool suit. It looked like it was starched so
1: well that you could <laughs> shoot like a you could shoot him with it, and it would just bounce off harmlessly whatever yeah. projectile you lobbed at. Maybe even a cannonball would just like instantly shatter. <laughs> um, so for me, you know my my recollection was I was like, so I went to high school from '84 to '87, right? So I, I started dating in the '80s, <laughs> and so. <laughs> What was funny was like we had this stupid, the dudes had this stupid fashion where we would take like our jeans and we would like kind of fold them over and then roll them up. So we oh, all looked, pegging we
0: had, your jeans. I yeah, we
1: would peg our jeans and we, and it was like the thing to do. And Paisley was really big. Oh yeah. And I was like the king of that. And uh, <laughs> rayon. We all looked like we were ready for the flood, but in a stylish <laughs> way. <laughs> the hair uh, that the girls had—I just remember, like all of a sudden one day, it seemed like every girl at every party I went to looked like either like a dark-haired Madonna, sort of. They all had that like crazy curly hair that stuck straight, like the super permed hair stuck straight up, and they all had all kinds of lace and shit. Their shirts were all lacy and crazy. And the gloves, yeah. The gloves and just the crate, yeah, and like all the beads. And it was just like, I was just like, it seemed like it happened overnight. I was like, they looked so normal, and you could actually see what their bodies looked like. And then the next thing you know, they were like just covered in clothing. And it was, it was, it was was the best of times and the worst of times. (laughs) Because you just never knew what you were in for. But yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty wild. I, I, I just remember the, the fashion just like, like Madonna came, to the, you know, Madonna kind of became an institution all of a sudden, and every girl looked just like her. It was really weird, or wanted to, it seemed like. And and then, there, you know, the new wave look, too, you know, I mean, that was all kind of based on the same thing, but you were just like, wow, that's pretty wild.
0: So, <laughs> yeah. Something that's, my... that's interesting about that whole pegging thing is that it didn't exist in the schools that I went to when I lived in an army base, it only came up when I actually went to a public school.
2: It's like a Western <laughs> culture thing.
0: Well, I just think it's a public versus a military oh, right, right. school. <laughs> yeah. Because there were bugle boys and people would roll those pants up because they had like they look like jeans, but they had plaid on the inside when you rolled up the cuffs of the jeans.
1: Yeah. Which was um, cool. Bugle boys were big big time, yeah.
0: Those were cool. But I, I didn't remember I, I wasn't until I was at a public school and I was in band and the people in band were telling me like you need to do such and such with your jeans this is how you do it I'm like what is this I'm like okay <laughs> and a long series of fashion do nots happened that yeah
1: yeah many sins were committed
0: <laughs>
1: yeah to say the least but yeah that's that's what I remember I I, uh, it's just the number one thing I remember was wow.
2: And what the of hell happened? There's the, the Robert Smith, The Cure look.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: That yeah. was
2: big. Yeah. That was huge. Uh,
1: and I was a huge fan of those guys, too.
0: Well, speaking of, let's wrap up our favorite 80s section to talk about what were our favorite 80s bands. <laughs>
1: Noah, what was yours? <laughs>
0: Uh, I really liked, and this was all kind of driven by whatever records my parents purchased and then played, because, again, you know, there wasn't a lot of great radio stuff. And my dad, up and through the 90s, only listened to oldies. So mm-hmm. I would never hear whatever the current music was playing unless my mom was choosing the music. So I was hearing like lots of I knew lots of 60s and 70s music, but not the 80s music. Uh, but when I did get to hear some of his music, I really loved stuff like Minute Work and All Notes nice. and uh, Duran Duran. Nice. And there's one other one that I, I is slipping my mind. But all the the big poppy themes from back then, I definitely liked. And I remember there was a turning point. I feel like it was a turning point in my childhood development that I said I was interested. <laughs> in Def Leppard <laughs> and my mom's like I don't think you should listen to that music and so I just stayed in top 40 land but I bet if I had gone down the Def Leppard path that I would have had a different development <laughs> growing up <laughs> as a child more mullets for sure <laughs> oh yes <laughs> Jeff do you have any
2: um Mine might be a little atypical. I I do like a lot of the New Wave stuff and that type of thing. But for me, um, I would say REM before they sucked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's also Talking Eds. I love them a lot. Joy Division. Um, Who else? Yeah, that's it for me.
0: Peter Gabriel was cool.
2: Ooh, yeah, he was good.
1: Genesis. Yeah, old Genesis, man. It's nothing like it. Yes.
0: <laughs> Mark, I'm sure you will have a very distinctively different taste in music for this topic. Ooh, of the, course.
2: The police too. I want
0: to throw that in. Oh, yeah. That
2: was
1: that was my lead in. Was, oh, okay. uh, so like synchronicity came out in eighty three and like totally blew my mind. Um I just couldn't understand like, how come they sounded so much cooler than everybody else, you know, with, like, their – the the vocal harmonization, you know, Sting's voice was different, the, the way they played syncopated, Stuart Copeland's drumming, like, everything about the way they – everything they did just seemed to defy, like, traditional music that I would heard because they had so many cool influences from, like, jazz and, and you know, reggae and stuff, and it, it was just – to me, they were like the ultimate um, musical force at the time. Um, also, the Beastie Boys came out, and I, I didn't even, I couldn't even like comprehend what they were doing at first. And then I was like, my God, this is like some of the coolest stuff I've ever heard. That's revolutionary. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, like um, License to Ill was. I don't know how many times I've listened to it, but I think I, you know, that was in the that was in the days of tapes, you know, and I mean, you could buy albums, but you bought tapes because your car could probably play it. And I think I went through multiple tapes for License to Ill*. <laughs> um, and uh, *The Cure* is another big one. Um, yeah. Just so talented, and and Robert Smith's like just such a such an underrated. Songwriter and an underrated um, player and performer, um, so they were all big. And I also got into—I was into Duran Duran and Depeche Mode and Ooh, yeah. a lot of the new—the new wave stuff that was out at the time. But I think at the core, it was kind of like somewhere between the Police and the Beastie Boys was where I was like, "This is just totally badass," and and it's influenced pretty much everything I've I've ever done musically, you know from from the point that I started to play music on my own and, you know, be an amateur musician perpetually, um, that those were kind of like my main influences. And even though it's far beyond the eighties now, it's still something that a lot of the lessons I learned from the music that I heard at that time kind of makes up, you know, what I try to do today. So
2: yeah, and those two bands in particular, they're they're pretty timeless versus the trendiness of new wave. Like, Yeah, Beastie Beastie Boys and Police are pretty timeless.
1: Yeah, and it's like, you know, MCA died recently, and I actually, I was like tearing up (laughs) when I got the news, which I didn't even think I would have, I I really felt like, you know, like I was not, you know, connected or anything like that. And then I found, and I was just like, my God, I'm never going to see them live again. I'm never going to see, I'm never going to be able to reproduce that moment. uh, You know what I mean? It was just like such a, it hit me really hard and everyone that I talked to that's, you know, kind of had, you know, was about the same age was like also equally just devastated. And it's, it's crazy to think of that, you know, how influential people are to your life. But
2: yeah. And that's, that's kind of like the thesis of this whole episode. What it's been is like nostalgia is a beautiful thing. You have these fond memories that you don't realize how, yeah, so significant they are in your life and
1: yeah what shapes yeah. your 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 core soul whatever it's it's amazing mm-hmm.
0: yeah well that no, is guess... a wrap for our 203rd episode our 80s spectacular
1: <laughs> I, I i'm glad you skipped cartoons because it was gonna really i was gonna have to talk about spider-man and his amazing friends and my lust after firestar <laughs> and, and...
0: <laughs> and I would have talked about He-Man. and yeah. Skeletor. <laughs> <laughs> I love Skeletor. And Thundercats especially with Moe oh, yeah. and Lion-O. Right. I, yeah, lots of fond 80s cartoon members. We were going to talk about it. We just kind of did really quickly. But we're going to move on in the interest yeah. of time.
1: That's <laughs> but... That's how we professionally get to talk about what we're not talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> so all in all, really I enjoyed my experience with Ready Player One. The book signing experience was awesome. And Jeff, thanks for so much for encouraging us and letting us know about all this cool stuff and it'll be exciting to see where the real world contests related to Ready Player One, how that plays out, how yeah. the movie ends up, if it gets made. I mean Klein was pretty Quick to tell us he's like oh you know it's not totally guaranteed yet you know the rights are about. but there's just so much cool stuff and just to take a little brief trip back to the 80s was really fun so thank you Jeff very much for joining us of course thanks for having me guys and it was great of course as I was talking with you Mark about the 80s well,
1: man you too glad we, glad we did it yeah.
0: listeners we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did we look forward to your feedback we will be back